Well, I, I have a, a pretty simple aspiration for this last session, and it is simply to look at some of what the Bible says about how Christians are to engage in controversy. And more specifically, in light of what we've been looking at over these last few days, is how we are to engage the evangelical wokeism. So I, I want to look at some principles from God's Word. And my basic thesis is this, that faithful Christians must engage the current crisis and do so honestly, joyfully, and courageously. So first and foremost, as Mike and others have said, we must engage. I identified with what James Lindsay said earlier uh, when he acknowledged last year speaking to these issues. He said, I feel like I'm late to the battle. I'm late to engage. And this year I even feel you know, more so that way. Well, that's my own story. Uh, these things were taking place long before I could get my mind around them, and I'd had opportunity to see them and confront them. Mike, others were telling me about them, but I just couldn't see it. And when I finally did begin to see it, it's like, oh no, <laughs> uh, this has gone on so long so far, I must get in the game. And when that dawned on me, I repented, I seriously repented before God to the congregation I served, to the elders and acknowledge that this is something I should not have been asleep on. So being awakened to it, what do we do? Well, first of all, if you haven't been involved, I would encourage you and call upon you to repent. We have a gospel, we have a Savior, shed His blood for us, and so if you find yourself having been derelict in your duty to Him, there's no shame, no embarrassment in repenting and acknowledging that, and, and praise God that He's bringing it to your attention. But get in the game. How? Take seriously the biblical warnings and admonitions that we have in the Bible for our everyday Christian living. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful book on holiness, said this, The man who is content to sit ignorantly by his own fireside, wrapped up in his own private affairs, and has no public eye, for what is going on in the church and the world is a miserable patriot and a poor style of Christian. I don't want to be either one of those. And I would trust that being here for this conference, neither do you. What Ryle is doing is simply applying what so much of the Bible says in its warnings and admonitions to be alert, to be careful as we engage the Christian life through this fallen world. We must take seriously the commands of Scripture to stand firm against error, evil, and wickedness, particularly in the church. Uh, for example, Jesus Himself told us that we are to beware of false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Paul repeatedly warns against false teachers in the church. For example, in Romans 16, where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So he says, in light of that, be sober. 
Be watchful. This is not something unusual for the Christian life. It's normal. In 2 Peter 3.17, he says, Take care that you don't be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Paul says in Ephesians 6, in verse 10 through 13, he says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil has schemes. He has plans for you. He has plans for the church. He intends to destroy the work of God, the people of God, and if he could, he would destroy God himself. So Paul says, take up the whole armor of God, therefore, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. As Josh Expounded for us earlier in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Now we can multiply these types of warnings and admonitions for the rest of the time today because it's throughout Old Testament and New Testament, these types of admonitions are given to us so that we might live normal Christian lives so that we might live well in the world. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we can't ignore these types of commands. You can't do it and be faithful. I mean, you can just disobey them and dishonor Christ, or you can acknowledge that, okay, these are marching orders for me that have been given to me by my Lord, and embrace them. We must recognize that Christian leaders are not beyond being ensnared by error and demonic influences. And we must be willing to hold our Christian leaders accountable. I think one of the most sobering realities that needs to be recovered and highlighted in our day is that Christian leaders, esteemed Christian leaders, can be taken snared, ensnared by the devil. We see it in Peter, right? Caesarea Philippi, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And then a few breaths later, when Jesus says, I've got to go to Jerusalem, I'll be handed over and I'll be arrested and I'll be abused and I'll be crucified. And Peter says, no way, Lord. It's not going to go down that way. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. What's he telling us there? He's telling us Satan has come and influenced the mind of the Apostle Peter. And then if, as if that's not enough, the night Jesus is arrested, what do we see with Peter? He calls down curses in his denial of even knowing Jesus. And then after he's restored and Christ has ascended into heaven, the spirits come down. What do we see in Antioch when Peter is eating with the Gentiles and some of these strict Jews from Jerusalem show up, what does Peter do? He quits walking according to the gospel, Paul said. Starts playing the hypocrite. And this is Peter. What happened to Peter? Do we think it can't happen to Christian leaders today? One of the most poignant sobering scenes in all the New Testament for me is in Acts chapter 20 when Paul calls for the elders 
from the church at Ephesus to meet him at Miletus. Paul had spent more time in that church than he did any other church that he planted. In Ephesus, he spent over three years and he was training leaders. He probably appointed these very men to the office of elder. And when he assembles them there, we read in Acts 20, starting in verse 28, he says to these men that he knew well, that he served with, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know, I've often wondered, how did he know? Was this some divine revelation as an apostle? Or was it just his sense of what's happening among these guys in this church as an astute observer of human nature? For I know, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then he says this, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. If this could happen to elders whom the Apostle Paul himself probably appointed and certainly trained, isn't it naive for us to think that we're immune to that? To think that our heroes in the faith couldn't have this happen to them as well? Just read the New Testament with both eyes open. Demas, Judas, Hymenaeus, Alexander, Phagellus, Hermogenes. These are all men who had some level of recognition and leadership in the New Testament church, yet all of them became ensnared to do the will of the devil. So I would say to my fellow pastors, brothers, we must not think that we are immune to the threats of this kind of evil. We need accountability, and we should welcome accountability. Pastors need pastors in their lives. Praise God for fellow elders in churches who take seriously the responsibility to hold each other accountable. And pastors need faithful churches whom they train and teach to hold them accountable because we need that. A Christian leader who avoids accountability is a fool. And this is why churches, as well as Christian organizations and institutions, need to be properly organized and held accountable to staying true to their mission. So the first things we need to do, brothers and sisters, is that we need to engage in this fight. And if you've been on the sidelines, if you've avoided getting involved because of the challenges that are entailing, entailed in that, then recognize that you have not done well. And if God is opening your eyes, then pray for that grace and strength to turn from your passivity and to begin to engage. Do it according to your ability and opportunity. But do it with honesty. Do it with honesty. That should be self-evident, but sadly it can be overlooked in times of controversy we need to make an honest assessment of those whose views we oppose. Why? Because our God is the God of truth. Our God is the one 
whom Paul writes to Titus, cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19 says he's not a man that he should lie. So being godly requires telling the truth, even truth about our opponents. One of the temptations we face anytime a controversy erupts is to misrepresent those with whom we disagree. We're tempted to put ourselves and our own views in the best possible light and to put our opponents in the very worst light. But that's the tactic of the devil, who is the father of lies. He misrepresented God to Adam and Eve and held himself up as the one who knew best and could offer them real life. So as children of God and followers of Jesus Christ, we must engage in apologetics and polemics with a commitment to telling the truth. This means that no matter what the controversy is, no matter what the stakes are, we are never free to violate the ninth commandment. Doing so or having this kind of commitment will require our work to be more diligent at times, more difficult at times, but our God deserves nothing less. So in addition to engaging and doing so with honesty, we must also engage with joy. You know, it's a sad commentary whenever Christians engage in controversies and joy is never found. In one sense, it's understandable because there's nothing inherently joyful about controversy in and of itself. Uh, There are some Christians that seem never to be happy unless they're fighting. They just kind of have a pugilistic spirit about that. I'm not talking about that at all. Rather, what I am talking about is we need to be so oriented toward God's grace to us in Christ that when, for the sake of our Master, we're called upon to engage in controversy, we're determined to do so without losing that joy we have in Him. I agree with John Piper on this point when he said, if something is worth fighting for, it's worth rejoicing over. And joy is essential in the battle, for nothing is worth fighting for that will not increase our everlasting joy in God. You know, there are many scriptures that speak directly to this in terms of how we are to rejoice in the midst of trials. I don't know if there's any passage that's more simple or direct as James chapter 1. With this regard, in James 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, We read, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we're commanded to rejoice in the midst of opposition and difficulty, to count it all joy when trials come. Why? Because we know. We can rejoice because of what we know. What do we know? Trials are God's way of building steadfastness in His children. This is how we mature. This is a key ingredient to spiritual maturity. Later in James chapter 1, verse 12, this point's underscored when he writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God uses trials to build steadfastness in His children. So in that sense, trials are a blessing to God's children. It's knowing this. It's taking God at His word when He says these kinds of things about trials 
that will enable us to engage them not only with the sorrow and the pain that are inherent in doing so, but also with honesty and resolve and with real joy and with real confidence. Paul indicates that this is simply normal Christian living, as Mike said earlier. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, there's not an admonition or an indicative in it. It's just descriptive. Paul's just saying that being justified because we have peace with God, we've gained access with God, this is how we live. We rejoice in our sufferings. That's just what Christians do if we're thinking right. Why? He's, again, same thing James says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, the connection between rejoicing and knowing. If we're not rejoicing in trials and sorrows and in, in difficulties and in controversies, it's because we've lost sight of what we know or we don't know what we should know. And we need to come back to Scripture and recognize this and say, okay, all right, God has put me here. It's not easy be painful, be loss involved, and, and shed tears. But we can, with the midst, in the midst of our sorrows, like Paul, learn to be always rejoicing. Well, given this truth, the way that God provides for us in Christ, such that on our most difficult, worst day, we're not in hell, which is where we deserve to be, and on our worst day, we are reconciled to God through the grace that He's given us in His Son. It's no wonder that Jesus says what He does to us in the Sermon on the Mount. When He tells His disciples that we're actually blessed whenever we suffer persecution. Whenever people ridicule us. These verses are precious verses to me. Matthew 5, 11 and 12 Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now think about it for a moment. Why would people persecute and revile the followers of Jesus for Jesus' sake? It's because the followers of Jesus are taking Jesus seriously, taking his word seriously. They're not going to compromise, right? I mean, that's how we get into these controversies. That's why we're, we are where we are now. It's because we refuse to bow. We refuse to back up. And we say, no, this is what the word says. We're going to live here. And persecution comes. Reviling comes. Ridicule comes. And Jesus says, okay, rejoice when that happens. You think, well, that's so hard. Well, it's the same Jesus and the same Word. If you're going to suffer for taking His Word seriously over here, take Him at His Word over here and learn to rejoice. I mean, that's something that we're trying to do in our house. We've, God's helped us the last couple of years, given us many opportunities. And so what we determined to do, my wife and I, is we're going to either throw a party or we're just going to have the best meal we can conceive of. And uh, we've gone from steak sometimes to hamburger because it got too expensive. They came so frequently over the last couple of years. But nevertheless, man, whenever something unusually bad would happen and something would be said, we just go get a steak or now go get hamburger or whatever, and we just grill it up and we just have a party. We're trying to take this seriously. We're going to rejoice because we know that this is God working in us. 
Brothers and sisters, in every trial, through every difficulty that the Lord leads His people, even those that threaten the very unity of His people, God is at work. He is at work for His own glory, for our eternal good. He employs trials as tools of sanctification in our lives individually, as well as instruments to strengthen and purify His church corporately. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what Paul says. I'm going to not go into all of it, but I commit it to, to you to read. Starting in verse 17, but let me just pick it up in verse 18. Paul says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, schisms. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, heresies, in order that you who are genuine, who are proven, have a quality that, that results from the trial of examination so that you who are genuine might be recognized. Heresies, factions come from false teaching. And Paul says, yeah, that's true. And they're necessary. They must be. They're not just inevitable. They actually play a vital role in what God is doing in His world and in His church. And that role is to make plain, to make recognizable those who are genuine those who pass through the trial remaining unmoved remain standing. Heretical movements are attacks upon God's revealed will, either in what He calls us to believe or what He calls us to do. As the statement on social justice in the gospel puts it, heresy is a denial or departure from a doctrine that is essential to the Christian faith. False teaching, heresy, is dangerous. Such things lead people astray and can lead people to hell. Well, because of this, God's people must be strong and we must resist heretical movements. We must never trifle with false teaching. Rather, we must recognize it, identify it, and reject it outright. Scripture is filled with these kinds of exhortations as I have just previously made reference to. But as we stand against false teaching and we engage them in order to refute them, we must do so with joy and the confidence that comes from knowing that God uses these things in our lives and in His kingdom. And Christian history teaches us this. We see it in the very pages of the New Testament in Acts chapter 15 with the Judaizer conflict when false teachers said, yes, you need faith in Christ, but you must also be circumcised. And so the council in Jerusalem 15 was called... And as a result of that controversy, there was this recognition and declaration that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Teaching was clarified. The church was purified. We see it occurring, this same pattern occurring time and again throughout Christian history. In the second century, when that heretic Marcion began to deny the Old Testament God being the same as the New Testament God. He said they're not the same. And when he came up with his own list of what he thought to be authoritative writings for Christians, and it was 11 books basically, or 10 and a half, not even really 11. And what happened? Well, God raised up Tertullian and others who stood against him. And the result was the clarification of the canon. The recognition that no, there are 66 books in the Old and New Testaments that God has given to us to make known His will. We see it also with Athanasius and Arian when he 
Arius, when he refuted the Arianistic heresy that Arius taught, as Arius taught people to sing, there was a time when the Son was not. In other words, the Son of God is just a creature. He's the first creature, the greatest creature, but just a creature. Athanasius stood against him. He was exiled five times by four different Roman emperors for over 17 years. And yet, in and through all that was going on during those difficult days, God was strengthening the church to profess things that would serve the church from that time forward. I love Athanasius' strategy for fighting against heresy. He, he puts it like this. He writes, Let us be courageous and rejoice always. Let us consider and lay to heart that while the Lord is with us, our foes can do us no hurt. But if they see us rejoicing in the Lord contemplating the bliss of the future, mindful of the Lord, deeming all things in His hand, they are discomfited and turned backwards. 17 years in exile. Courageous and joyful. Well, God bless that strategy. Through the Arian controversy we have today, the Nicene Creed, which in its later form provides clear statements on the doctrine of Jesus Christ, His deity and humanity, as well as the doctrine of our triune God. So contend for the gospel joyfully, knowing that in the process God's working this for your good, His glory, and for the advance of His kingdom. We must engage. We must do so honestly. We must do so joyfully. And finally, we need to do so with courage. With courage. Sadly, courage is in short supply when controversy arises within the church. And that's been evident over these last few years. Some men show no courage at all. Others are willing to talk about courage, preach about courage, but not willing to pay the price that comes from actually being courageous. It takes courage to stand up and be counted in times of controversy. Not the kind of courage to be confused with bravado and self-assurance, but the kind that the Bible commends. The kind of courage that is rooted in humility, that is grounded in confidence in God. It's what we see in David's commander Joab when his army had been outflanked by the Ammonites on one side and the Syrian troops on the other side. And he has to divide his forces up in order to fight on both fronts. In facing that daunting task, this is what he says in 2 Samuel 10, 12. Be of good courage, men, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to Him. We're going to fight we're going to take our stand. We're going to do everything we can to withstand this and overcome these enemies. But the battle is the Lord's. This kind of courage is born out of knowing God and being filled with a proper fear of Him such that you lose your fear of people. This is what Jesus taught His disciples in Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Oh, that's the worst. They can kill us. But Paul says, to live as Christ, to die is gain. 
So in one sense, you'd say that those who kill you are doing you a favor. They're actually giving you more of Jesus. <laughs> he says, don't fear those people, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, or not one of them, and yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more value than sparrows. The fear of the Lord breeds courage. If God helps us to grow in fearing Him, then we'll not fear the face of any mere mortal. Because we all know that both their lives and our lives are in the hands of God. Charles Spurgeon was a man of such courage in his day, and he serves us well today because of it. This 19th century English Baptist pastor stood firm against the onslaught of liberalism that crept into his own Baptist union. In the midst of that downgrade controversy, Spurgeon articulated the kind of courage that God's children need to face such challenges. The kind of courage we need today. Listen to Spurgeon. We admire a man who was firm in his faith, say, 400 years ago. But such a man today is a nuisance. He must be put down. Call him a narrow-minded bigot. Or give him a worse name if you can think of one. Yet imagine that in those ages past, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and their compeers had said, the world is out of order, but if we try to set it right, we shall only make a great row and get ourselves into disgrace. Let us go to our chambers, put on our nightcaps, sleep over the bad times, and perhaps when we wake up, things will have grown better. Such conduct on their part would have entailed upon us a heritage of error. Age after age would have gone down into the infernal deeps, and the pestiferous bogs of error would have swallowed all. These men loved the faith in the name of Jesus too well to see them trampled upon. It is today as it was in the Reformer's day. Decision is needed. Here's the day for the man. Where is the man for the day? We who have had the gospel passed to us by martyrs' hands dare not trifle with it, nor sit by and hear it denied by traitors who pretend to love it, but inwardly abhor every line of it. Look, you sirs, there are ages yet to come. If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation and another, and all these generations will be tainted and injured if we are not faithful to God and to His truth today. We have come to a turning point in the road. If we turn to the right, mayhap our children and our children's children will go that way. But if we turn to the left, generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and His Word. We stand on the shoulders of men who were willing to die for the sake of the truth. And we have given to us through their hands, a heritage and a legacy that helps us to recognize the power of God throughout history. That same power that is available to God's people today through His Word and His Spirit. Oh, brothers, sisters, we must not back away in passivity and let this crisis continue on without our full courageous engagement. The Apostle Paul 
has given us an example to follow when he said in Acts 20.24, I do not count my life of any value or precious to myself. He said, the Spirit's just told me I've got persecutions awaiting me everywhere I go toward Jerusalem. He said, I don't care. I don't care. My, my life is held loosely. This is what I care about. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. During a particularly difficult time last year, uh, for me and my wife, a, a friend sent me a poem. And it's one that I've returned to time and again. It's by Norman MacLeod, who was a 19th century Church of Scotland pastor. Let me read it. It says, Courage, brother, do not stumble. Though thy path is dark as night, there is a star to guide the humble, trust in God and do the right. Let the road be long and dreary, and its ending out of sight. Foot it bravely, strong or weary, trust in God and do the right. Perish policy and cunning. Perish all that fears the light. Whether losing, whether winning, trust in God and do the right. Trust no forms of guilty passion. Fiends can look like angels bright. Trust no custom, school, or fashion. Trust in God and do the right. Trust no party, church, or faction. Trust no leaders in the fight. But in every word and action, trust in God and do the right. Some will hate thee. Some will love thee. Some will flatter, some will slight. Cease from man and look above thee, trust in God and do the right. Simple rule and safest guiding, inward peace and inward light. Star upon our path abiding, trust in God and do the right. Such faith-born confidence in our God and Father who gave us His Son, in order to rescue us from sin and reconcile us to Himself, will cultivate the kind of courage necessary to stand firm for His cause and truth, even when it's costly to do so. Susanna Spurgeon said that her husband's engagement in the downgrade controversy cost him 10 years of his life. And Spurgeon, in the midst of that controversy, spoke to a group of pastors on one occasion. And he said, I'm willing to be eaten by the dogs for the next 50 years. In other words, he said, I know my reputation is going to be trampled. And I, he said, I'm happy for that to happen. Better to suffer the loss of life itself for the cause of God and truth, he reasoned, than to be cast upon that foul dunghill which is made up of cowards' failures and misspent lives. God save both thee and me from that disgrace. Our God is a God of peace. He calls us to pursue peace. In Romans 12, 18, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. It's right. It's, it's a good and godly aspiration to live a quiet and peaceful life to avoid controversy. Paul reiterates that point in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 when he encourages Christians to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. He does it again in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he encourages his young colleague in the ministry 
to pray for civil authorities so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's a good aspiration. But God never causes people to live quiet, peaceful lives at all costs. There are points, there are reasons to forsake a quiet, peaceful life and to intentionally engage in controversy. Paul says, if possible, if possible, he was very much aware that sometimes peace simply is not possible for those who are genuinely committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Himself certainly didn't live a controversy-free life. So why should we as followers think that we can or that we deserve to? Psalm 120 has become a favorite psalm of mine over the last many, many years. And I actually wrote in the margin of my Bible the, the Reformer's psalm in it. The psalmist there cries out to the Lord in his distress. He asks to be delivered from his enemies. He describes his enemies as deceitful and treacherous. He says in verse 6, they hate peace. And then he concludes with this wonderful piece of insight. He says, I'm for peace. But when I speak, they're for war. He's a man of peace. He wants peace. And he can have peace if he'll just not speak. But if he speaks, if he takes a stand for what's right and good and true, then his opponents will come after him. And they'll be for war. Do you ever wish you could just forget about these things and the matters that have been brought to this conference? Wish you'd never heard of them and just kind of figure out a way to go back to your home and focus on loving your friends, loving your family, worshiping in your church, doing your job. My wife and I sometimes joke about a life like that. You know, for some of us, it would mean going home and just being able to play with your grandkids more. Well, there's something biblical about that kind of aspiration. It's not wrong to desire those types of things unless God in His providence places you in a situation where His Word is being undermined and His Gospel is being attacked. Brothers and sisters, that's where we are today. God has placed us here and now. He's opened our eyes to these things, and we are accountable. That little letter in the back of the New Testament, the book of Jude, is instructive for us on this very point. In Jude chapter, or Jude only has one chapter, verses 3 and 4, Jude tells us the genesis of that letter, and it's interesting because he actually mentions two letters. He mentions the letter that he wanted to write and the letter he wound up writing. Listen to it. Beloved, although I, was, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to write a letter that would be warm, pastoral, 
talk about the common salvation, the things that they knew together and loved together. But he wound up writing a terse letter of warning, admonition, calling them to action to contend for the gospel. He set aside his aspiration to have this leisurely kind of communication with them in order to do what needed to be done in the moment. To engage in controversy and to call upon them to stand with him. Why? Because the faith once for all delivered to the saints was under attack. That faith is what alone reconciles sinners to God. So he says, contend. Why? So you can win an argument? No. Contend. Why? So you can gain power and prestige? No. Contend because heresy is infiltrating those regions where these believers lived. And if that heresy was not refuted, if it gained the ascendancy and people believed it, they would believe it all the way to hell. So he says... I set aside my aspirations and I take pen in hand and write you to contend for this faith. If we believe this, then we can't just simply go home and live quiet, peaceful lives. We must be willing to contend for the faith by repudiating this new woke religion. What does that look like practically? Well, let me try to give some specific counsel. As has been said, John articulated it well earlier, pray. Don't forget to pray. We must cry out to the Lord. The battle really is the Lord's. So let's ask Him to strengthen the good work that does take place in seeking to set His gospel forth and contend for it. Secondly, seek to understand accurately the issues that are at stake. Don't speak beyond what you know, but keep trying to know and understand more. Thirdly, let your voice be heard. Show up. Just show up. That's, that's so much of it. That's massive. Show up. Stand up. Speak up. Start locally. And I, I, again, part of my repentance is doing this even in our area down in Cape Coral. Start locally in the civil arena. I've called our sheriff. I've called our police chief, and engaging city council. Learn those people's names. and Communicate with them. Find out what's going on in your local school board. Go back and listen to James' talk on diversity, inclusion, equity. Which, by the way, did you notice the acronym of that? <laughs> Die. L listen to it again. Understand the word games going on. And ask the questions about what's being taught in your local schools. Ask your council members serious questions about these issues. Express your concerns where you have them and, and encourage and applaud common sense approaches to the issues of our day. In your church, if you're not in leadership in your church, talk to your leadership and ask them for their views and for guidance on these issues that we've talked about at this conference. If they are woke and unwilling to be engaged, leave that church. 
Leave the church. You may have been there 30 years. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with people who have wept leaving their churches because having been there for many, many years, they have leadership now that are fully woke and unwilling to be reasoned with and questioned on those views. If your leaders are healthy and seeing these things right, support them, pray for them, encourage them, because I assure you they're not walking an easy path. If they're uninformed, introduce them to helpful resources. Uh, Set them on to the talks from this conference. There's a a growing amount of good literature and uh, talks and, and panel discussions that you can put in front of them to help them. If you financially support missionaries or organizations, find out where they stand on these issues. Ask the plain questions. If they are woke, withdraw your support and tell them why. If they're not, if they're open to being instructed, then instruct them, help them learn. If they are solid, then support them more. Invest your gifts and resources in this fight. God has gifted all of His children in various ways. He's given some of you wonderful intellectual gifts. Pray that He might harness those gifts and do your best to see those gifts harnessed in a way that will advance the cause of contending for the gospel in this particular fight. You may have skill sets that would be useful in this fight. Employ them in it. You may have financial resources. Invest your finances in this battle. You might have time. Use your time wisely to help contend for the faith today. Do not withhold whatever God has entrusted into your hand for such a time as this. To my fellow pastors and church leaders, accept the responsibility to shepherd the church of God which, as Paul said to the Ephesian elders, he purchased with his own blood. The blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. Protect your people. They are being confronted with ideologies that we've discussed here day in and day out. On their jobs, in their schools, through their news outlets. Help them to think biblically about what is bombarding them. Examine the missionaries, mission agencies, parachurch organizations that your church supports. Ask pointed questions. Find out where they stand on these issues. If they are woke, defund them. Cut them off. Tell them why. And find faithful missionaries and organizations that you can lead your church to partner with. If they're solid, encourage them, support them more because they will need that type of support. If you're part of a denomination, which I know many of you are because you've mentioned at least three or four different ones to me in these last couple of days, but something like the PCA or EPC or SBC, ask the leaders of your denominations direct questions about these issues. Listen to what is coming out of the institutions and agencies of your denomination. And remind those denominational workers that they serve the churches of the denomination. And that those organizations that they lead belong to the churches. Hold denominational leaders accountable. If they have promoted or even facilitated these ideologies being spread, call them to repent. If they refuse, 
replace them. If they're under a trustee structure, call the trustees to do their job. If the trustees refuse to do their job, then work to replace them. Resolve to be a warrior in this fight. But resolve to be a happy warrior. A warrior who doesn't forget the truth that's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. This is our duty. Consequences belong to the Lord. So let's be content to leave the outcome with Him. It may be that if we stay the course and can unite others to join us in this battle, we may see the tide change. God can and has in the past grant repentance and revive His work in the midst of these years. And if He does that, well, then our churches will probably be smaller. They will definitely be holier. Our leaders will be more humble and more bold. Our worship will be more sincere. Our evangelism will be more passionate and effective. And if any of those or all of those things happen, praise God, the victory will be the Lord's. But it may be that the Lord has something bigger and better planned than immediate victory. And if so, then let us remember that the victory is still the Lord's. He accomplished His greatest work in what appeared to be the most tragic event and greatest defeat in human history. If you took a snapshot at the cross, it would look like everything had caved in on itself. Everything was lost. And yet, on the cross, God was doing His deepest work. He was redeeming sinners to Himself. He was accomplishing the salvation of anyone and everyone who would ever turn from sin and look to the sin bearer as their atonement and be reconciled to God through Him. So with the Apostle Paul, let's not forget that. Let's resolve to live and fight so that we can say with Paul, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. In 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were condemned to die because they refused to acquiesce to the errors of Rome. On October 16th, when they were tied to their posts, preparation to be burned, 74-year-old Latimer looked across at his younger colleague and he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. So whether we're successful in this fight or not, whether we live or whether we die, either way we win because the battle really is the Lord's. May God help us. Amen.